Hello, and welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. I'm David Huntsberger. Welcome to the furthest known reaches of our known universe. Tucked safely out here in a little cave. Dan, how about a little fire? Ooh. Nice and cozy here in the Space Cave. Just a reminder, January 26th, I will be at the Dynasty Typewriter filming a sequel to One-Headed Beast, which is a streaming stand-up comedy slash animation project. You can find it streaming on a bunch of places, including Roku Channel and Amazon Prime. And prior to that, I'll be in Winnipeg at Rumors Comedy Club, January 14th through 18th. Come on out, see a show. I'd love to see you. All right, here's part two with the great Brian Dunning from the Skeptoid Podcast. We should have, yeah, we should have been recording should have all been of recording. this. Yeah, I mean, I'll share that and some <laughs> bonus behind-the-scenes stuff talking about not the flash or the strike moment, but the, the, the moment where with some people when you watch them working at what they're doing, and sometimes it doesn't take off, and other times it does, and sometimes behind the scenes, you know, Steve Martin wrote a book about 20 years it took to be an overnight sensation. So I'm sure every comedian saw him on the scene, at the clubs, wherever, and went, man, Steve's really good. I wonder when his time's going to come. And then other, nowadays, maybe in the YouTube scene or people spring up overnight, and it seems almost like in the, the podcasting world, it, w- it wasn't quite that because it didn't exist. So for you to be someone that you didn't have a television show, you weren't a known celebrity, you're just some guy just started doing this, and then you spring on the scene kind of out of nowhere, w- were you received by... Th- whatever that would be. There's not necessarily even an establishment that could go, hey, hey, who's this new guy? <laughs> um, in my case? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> like, how did that feel when, were you getting any, hey, welcome to the club, I do this, and we should uh, work together, anything like that? Or, no. Get it, stay out of this town. No, podcasting was, in 2006, podcasting was a very lonely business. <laughs> you know, you, you, it was unlikely that you knew any other podcasters. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you knew some podcasts, but no, there was, there there was no welcome wagon. There was, there was nothing <laughs> like that. It was really just um, just the listeners. You know, it, 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 especially in those early days, it was much more of an intimate relationship between the podcaster and the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you knew many of the listeners by name, and you would email and correspond back and forth with them. Um, and I still have that. I just <clears throat> still have that to some degree. But um, did it just get too big and overwhelming to respond to everyone? Well, you can't. You know, the the, the, the interesting thing is, um, the if you if you graph like uh, if you graph Skeptoids numbers over the years, uh, our peak our peak listenership was in about 2012 2013, and it's been declining since then. But the reason is because there are so many more podcast now i mean there's there's over a million podcasts listed in itunes but almost all of those listeners are in you know the top 
one percent of one percent of shows but that is a huge number now so you've got all these uh, investor financed podcast networks and you've got all the npr shows and everything you've got a lot of really high quality programming out there and it's much more difficult to compete when i started it was easy to be the best podcast and now you're 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 lucky if you're you know the the 2000th best podcast. I'm lucky I've been in the top 10 of social science in iTunes ever since 2007 and nice. still am. I'm number four. We were just happened to be looking at that the other day. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. But, but that still being on the front page of social science in iTunes and having the numbers been declining now for six, seven years, mm-hmm. that's pretty amazing. And it, and it's, it, it shows just how the industry has been evolving and, and changing. Yeah. You know, do, you know, when donations peaked, no podcasts used to be donation supported, right? And now they're advertising supported. Um, that peaked in 2011. Really? So in, since 2011, the percentage of skeptoid listeners who donate to the show has been declining. Mm hmm. But our, our our total income has been has been going up. I, um, we're a nonprofit, and you know, we, we our our model is different from most other podcasts. We don't do any advertising um, because we can't because we violate tax laws if we have certain verbiage in our oh, in our sponsored messages. Yeah. yeah. So our sponsored we can do sponsored messages, and for most of our sponsored slots, they are regular advertisers of the same advertisers who are on many other podcasts, but we have to tweak the wording a little bit to be compliant with, mm-hmm. with tax law and everything. And that's a very, very small part of our, of our income anyway. It's still, by and large, it's private grants and donations. I think that when you can get out there and solicit that and that you have a, here's what we do and here's why it's valuable, here's what's necessary, then people feel comfortable. Oh, here's an amount of money. But I think overall, like you said, like there's a million podcasts and people are signing up for this streaming service and this thing and paying X amount per month. And it really adds up to, well, I've joined this hosting thing that has 10,000 podcasts, but this other one I really like is over here. Do I want to contribute to this big thing and this one? Well, if the price point is here, I guess I will. So there are all those like analytic things in it that... The podcast that I did before this one, we I, it's funny you mentioned donations. I'd totally forgotten about that. When people donated $100, we would do like a big thing on the show to sort of thank them. Right. And I had forgotten that, that most, that's how we wanted it to be. We didn't really want to ever sell ads. And yet to think of any amount of money we ever made was virtually nothing. I and mean, especially sharing it with the network, they didn't really, I don't remember until the last year of it, them really ever giving us any money. We'd have donations like, we did like five of them this month. Do anything? Nope. Try again next month. (laughs) (laughs) But the moment we started selling advertising, we started making money the final year of the show. And that's, I battled that a little bit with this show too. No one knows it exists. It's this quiet little thing that, but I like it in that I do what I want. I don't feel like it's um, being compromised in any way, but if there were ads, it would dramatically increase the revenue to some degree, but it, it changes it. It, 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 set, it. Not that it poisons it, but it dilutes it a little bit, what you're trying to do. I, to me, I, I will always hold on to the idea that podcasting was birthed out of this, what you got in, what you thought, I'm going to write down something that I care about, and I'm going to share it. And I'm not doing this because I want to become a millionaire. I'm just fascinated by this, and I've always wanted to really zero in on this thing that I think is nonsense and explain why it is and see if anyone else gets any value out of that. 
in, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be on a panel at um, Oregon State University um, called How to Create and Monetize a Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the, the, the funny thing is my initial reaction to that is my, my short answer is forget about it. It ain't going to happen, right? <laughs> um, but I'm, <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I can't say that. What, what I'm going to be talking about is... Um, What's your objective in creating a podcast? Yeah. Is it because you want to become an internet celebrity? Or is it because you want to make money? Or is it because you're trying to promote a business or do some serve some educational mission or something? Because all but one of those are not to make money. So yeah. monetizing your podcast should not be your objective. Right. That's very, very difficult to do. So don't even bother pursuing it. Yeah, people will do five or ten episodes and then not be a millionaire and go, ah, screw this. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've left however many people, 50, 5,000, whatever it is, going, hey, where's where's number 11? Like, yeah, I'm done. It's incredible when you, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a member of a number of Facebook groups talking about podcasting and everything and just reading people's reports saying, hey, I just started my podcast. Uh, how many episodes do you guys get? I got like 14 last week. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> and it's like, wow, that's that's a tough spot to be. You can't go to mid-roll and say, hey, I've got 14 <laughs> listeners. <laughs> How much will you pay me to put an ads in my show? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough business. If you're not, pretty much what I tell people is if you're not a Hollywood A-list celebrity, don't start a podcast because you think you're going to make money at it because yeah. you're not. Your no. objective has to be something else. I did and that a, may be what's more important. I hope so. I, I did. I used to, when I would do college gigs, I would set aside a number of minutes. Does anyone in here want to try stand-up? You can do an open mic right now. Oh, that's awesome. It was really fun. Kids would come up and they'd tell a few jokes. And I'd go, all right, good job. And one time a kid came up and he did okay. And I said, ah, it went all right. Like, you might have a future in this. And he goes, I, I heard there's no money in it. And I thought, what a weird thing to drive you, that you might be talented or exceptional at something, and it wouldn't even enter your mind because you couldn't make money, and, which is a very logical and rational way to approach life. But uh, I, I, a friend of mine is a professor, and she, in one of similar type of, type of class, like business or marketing or something like branding, she had me Skype in with the class and uh, talk about just podcasts. I think at the time I was hosting a TV show, so I could talk about multimedia stuff and a variety of different levels of you know, production. And so many of the kids, that's what they wanted to know. You did a podcast, like, how much money did you make? And I was like, well, I, I don't really know. Mm -hmm. you know they, they, it, they were, and I thought, that's smart. They're so focused. But what do you care about? What are you passionate about? It sucks that this thing that, and maybe that's yeah. any medium started that way, music, whatever it may be, that people just went, I love this, and this is what I want to do. And other people saw that and went, they're making a lot of money. How do I do that? <laughs> and then it just kind of sours it. It's so it's so cliche, but it's so true. You know, that most basic life advice of all is uh, do what you're passionate about. Mm -hmm. uh, that, yes, that's totally cliche to the point that you, it's laughable, yeah. but it is genuinely true. Because if you do what you're passionate about, you'll be happy. Yeah. And if you're very fortunate to be good at it, mm -hmm. Because we're not all, we don't happen to all be really good at the thing that we happen to be passionate about. Oh, man, that's such a sad sentence. But if, it's so true. <laughs> it's, yeah, but if both of those things line up, you will be mm -hmm. successful or you've got a very good chance at it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, do a podcast if you're passionate about it. 
but don't expect it if you're doing it for one reason don't expect it to to be something else as well because yeah. it's probably not going to <laughs> but that's not what's important well people would look at bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency and things and go ah, i should have gotten in oh he started his podcast in 2006 i should have done that and then you go well what do you want to do now what do you drive around when you're stuck in traffic on your way to work thinking that you'd love to do i'd love to go sit by the beach and paint just landscapes oh, we'll do that you might not make any money at it yeah you your story is almost the equivalent of doing that and people walking over and crowding around behind you and be like can i buy that painting it, it's it, it, the not that it's unreasonable but it's atypical that it's blossomed <laughs> into something that's a thriving nonprofit. Yeah, it, and it, it, it's funny that you say that because my stepfather, well, after he retired and he moved to Montana to, you know, we all thought to write his manifesto or whatever, <laughs> he started painting. He, st he started taking classes in plein air painting. Mm -hmm. And now he's in galleries and he makes a very good living as a painter. This is after he retired. And that. for his entire life, he never showed remotely the slightest interest in anything <laughs> art related. <laughs> and I guess it had just been something that was in the back of his mind his entire life. His, he, he was kind of secretly passionate about it, but he never pursued it. Wow. And if he had, who knows where he would have been because now he's doing very well in his 70s. Yeah. Oh, man. He's so lucky he lived long enough to try it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine him, you know, having an illness that put him in the hospital with like, sorry, man, you only got two weeks. And the whole two weeks he'd be going, I never painted. <laughs> I always wanted to paint. Do you read Mark Twain? I have, yeah. I used, to, I used to, when I would substitute teach, he was always my go-to kind of short story guy when I had a class okay. off or something. There's a there's a great story by called Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. And uh, it just talks about kind of, this guy goes to heaven, learns how heaven works and everything. And, and some of the greatest people in heaven are like the world's greatest poet mm -hmm. for example never wrote a line of poetry in his life he worked as a as a cobbler in a shoe <laughs> store and died of tuberculosis at the age of 20 right <laughs> but he was the he had the ability he was the uh, world's greatest poet and now that. that he's in heaven he's revered as the greatest poet and he occupies some lofty space in, <laughs> in the hierarchy don't you you know because on the skeptical science side we're presented with what's in front of us and i had a a rocket science guy in here recently and he goes i'm not only an atheist i'm an anti-theist i just don't like the idea that it even exists because we have no evidence of any sort to give us that to believe in and i went okay that's fair but also i like the the opportunity being out there that if there is an afterlife i would love to know stuff like that like here's what you should have done are you sure you want to see this oh okay go ahead you would have been the greatest architect damn it <laughs> of course the best answer to the question is if is there an afterlife the best answer is i'm all for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely i hope so i, I would it would just be asinine to go no there, there's no chance and no. i don't want to i like because if you i think if you operate in that way you might not let your brain wander off and think about out different scenarios that could arise could be there so all of our <clears throat> art and creativity a lot of it i think comes from that people that just didn't put boundaries on which sometimes worries me about saying these are the facts these are the rules of our universe of the world we live in etc and to some degree we do that with kids you know we we take them and they go i want to do this i think this and you go sorry buddy it doesn't work that way you can't do this and every time we are right but sometimes we might be, you know, when it's that ambiguous in that way, maybe the afterlife or things like that, it seems sad to me that we would say, there is none, son. 
that, you, okay, so you're, you're actually hitting on what is my primary, my prime directive, my guiding principle in, in doing Skeptoid, which is every show has to be inherently positive. Nice. And if you're just debunking, if you're taking away somebody's cherished belief, okay, mm-hmm. someone who believes they're, they can talk to their dead mother through a psychic or something, you're doing, nobody a, you're doing nobody a service if all you're doing is telling her her ghost is fiction, her belief is wrong. Yeah. Um, the debunking thing is inherently negative. Now, sometimes you have to debunk an erroneous belief in order to get to the positive part which is to understand it it, it may be to how to understand how and why people come to believe these sorts of things but what is i want everyone to listen to a to a skeptoid podcast and say wow that was really cool i learned something really neat no matter who they are even if i was completely attacking a belief of theirs that that is very important to them i still want them to listen to the show and come away thinking wow that was really cool and i love that and i and i i I know that i'm doing something right because i get so much feedback from people like uh for example there's been i don't attack religious views now part of this is because we're a nonprofit; we stay away (laughs) from politics and religion and Mm -hmm. we have an educational mission and all that and we're used in schools so certain things are taboo but more important than that is i just want this show to appeal to as big a tent as possible so i will hear from people um i did a, a a couple of episodes on um mormon history now the mormons have a demonstrably false belief in some historical events that are proven not to have happened are you saying that jesus and his disciples were not in florida <laughs> i mean we don't go to we don't go to that but but i mean we things like you know well we know that copper wasn't being smelted and things you know metallurgy technology horses didn't exist in this continent you know there's things like this that sure. that we can prove her are, are are not true and and we can follow an interesting process to arrive at those conclusions but i will get emails from devout mormons who for some reason listened to that episode um, i don't know why they did but i'm glad that they did and they'll say i really appreciated the way you handled that and you're right a lot of mormons need to open their minds a little bit and make sure that their beliefs are more in line with you know what archaeology shows and everything so mm-hmm. that we're all on the same page so you know you, you don't attack someone's religion but their factual claims are fair game if yeah. they're making demonstrably false factual claims, that's fair game. The thing about this show that I love is I can openly just really lace into them. <laughs> I, uh, PBS has a great series called The Mormons. And uh, there, there are some things that are really frustrating about the church in that, um, I think it was in Ghana, a Book of Mormon was just kind of laying around and, and some people from Ghana found it and started building a little church and they wrote to the the temple in salt lake city and said hey there's like 30 of us now that are really into this and and how do we grow it how do, can someone come here and th- at that point the church did not accept black people so this is like in 1979 uh-huh. and so they had a big meeting and they went you know i think the the mormon version is like we should open our hearts the more like hardline skeptical view of it is we can make some money off these guys and then they sent someone there and I I always feel like everyone should be open to those sort of factual things from a standpoint of, you know, if I, if someone listening to this is 
devoutly Mormon, they would be like, "Yo, hey, hey!" But I would, I would want to welcome their thought on that, and they hopefully they would say, "You're right. Like it wasn't a great moment in the church. We still don't have women in places of power within the church structure. We've got a lot of room to grow still." Mm-hmm. But the overall um, ethos of the church is if there's a natural disaster, some of the first people on the scene will be LDS people. There, there's so many good, positive things to come out of it. Yeah. I love when, when people examine whatever their target is in that way. You know what? You guys have a lot of stuff wrong. You, you have a lot of backwards things, but here's, here's something good. Let's, let's appeal to, to both sides. Let's not just paint you as everything's great, everything's perfect, and let's not ignore that you boy, you really are hard on the LGBT community, things of that nature. I have some friends that left the Mormon church because they were getting really pressured from Prop 8. You know, hey, you guys are going to vote against this, right? You're going to... And they were like, no, we're not. And then they, they had just ended up leaving the church. The funny to me story about that is that we all ended up drinking a lot one night. <laughs> <laughs> they go, they're like 40 years old. And they were like, we've only been drinking for about five years. And I go, what? Like, right. We left because of this. And then we just decided, let's try all the stuff. And so, <laughs> they were really fun to hang out with. It's so great. And I, I don't know. I, I just think that uh, targets are my great aunt and uncle were really Catholic. And so I, and, or just religious, I should just say that. So I'm always there in my mind. If I have like an ax and I'm about to go like into the forest and just chop down everything about religion and you know, this is wrong and this is bad. I think there's just so much kindness and I'm curious, like you, you mentioned it, like trying to keep it positive, but are there times where you go, there is no way to do this without inherently, not insinuating or just outright of being offensive, but in some way uh, slighting this group. The only time I've done that was with an episode, the title of which was Despicable Vulture Scumbags. <laughs> was this about like television televangelists or something? No, this this was about um, this was about an industry that preys on L, uh, ALS victims. Oh, okay. Amyotrophic lateral <clears throat> sclerosis, you know, the Lou Gehrig's Lou disease, Gehrig's, yeah. the Stephen Hawking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, Dwight uh, Clark, great 49. And there are yeah, there are there there is a whole industry of selling fraudulent miracle cures to this. Um, and it's a fact that the people who sell these know that they don't and can't work. Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of a place where I draw the line. Now, I, I would not do that. that. That episode was a while ago, and I wouldn't do it now. But the only reason is because now I have you know, liability concerns and everything. And we don't mention specific living individuals or companies by name or anything. We just have, have to be citizens in the world. Um, so instead of criticizing people and companies, we criticize practices. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still plenty to criticize in that particular practice. So when you've got people who are being consciously evil, um, stealing money from terminally ill patients, mm-hmm. um, Part of the problem also in those cases is is the family. The family will often kind of enable and allow the person to do these. It's like, well, he needs some hope, you know. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, like but when when you're it, 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 I, I, the episode was about a, a particular guy who wrote me a letter about someone in his family. And after I thought about this a lot and did a bunch of research and looked into a number of these cases, um, I found out that the families are also being hurt when they see this person being taken advantage of. Um, and you, you have to put some of the blame on the patient himself. You can't say this guy has terminally is terminally ill, so he's beyond all blame he's perfect and we have to do everything he wants yeah that's not true Mm -hmm. that person still has some (laughs) obligations to his family and his family is suffering horribly Mm -hmm. and part of it is because he's pursuing these fraudulent cures kind of out of selfishness that's hurting his family because they know that he's being taken advantage of um so that was kind of a difficult move to to shift the blame from the companies. Well, I wasn't shifting the blame. That's not the right way to describe it. But I was the the companies who sell these things with false false claims of miracle cures. That's unacceptable, and there's no salvation for them. They are they are straight up evil people. But I was encouraging the patient himself to also take on some responsibility and realize that he's not the only victim in the situation, that his family is also being victimized by his illness as much as he is. He's going to be dead in a year and the family is going to be grieving and they're actually, they might end up suffering much worse than he does. Yeah. And so he does not necessarily have the right to say, I'm the one who's dying. I'm going to spend all of your money on this miracle cure. Mm -hmm. Um, That's... It was a difficult episode to work on. I'll bet. That's a very, I'm sure people, some people even just hearing that went, how? Well, I'll I'll tell you what happened because I had a follow up. A couple of years later, I heard back from the same family member said, well, he has, he has died now, but he did hear your episode and he did stop sending money to these people. That's Um, pretty great. And yeah. And, uh, it was I get, I get, it's hard for me to even talk about. It was the most, the most profound moment of my whole career in doing Skeptoid. Um, that, uh, the, the family's gratitude for me having done that episode. Wow. That's, that's, a, that's touching for me just hearing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can see I get all misty. I, I, I it's kind of hard to talk about. It's for me, from this side of things, you know, hosting a show called Skeptoid, there's a natural feel or inherent like association with that word that, oh, this guy's (laughs) one of those 10 reasons why Star Wars could never happen. (laughs) That level of skepticism. Here's why that fight scene would never work. And in fact, you've just got this big heart that's kind of pouring out of you. And, you know, to just (laughs) go through and kind of methodically create these episodes with thought and care to them but when they touch or impact, especially something like that, where, you know, I, I would imagine that's one where you're working on and you know this could definitely have some ramifications. There are probably others where you're like, well, I'm working on a ghost story. Who knows? But that one. Let me tell you another example. And I got a lot of criticism for this one. Um, you know, the famous Bigfoot film mm-hmm. of, you know, the Bigfoot walking across the meadow. Right. And a number of investigative reporters, uh, one or two in particular, 
have now done all of the legwork and interviewed everyone who's still living who had anything to do with the making of that movie. And we now have, beyond any reasonable doubt, a fairly complete picture of how and where and when that movie was made and mm-hmm. who bought the film and the whole the whole thing. And yes, it was. No, there's no doubt it was a hoax. Because the one guy died a few years ago and he didn't tell. Bob Bob Gimlin, yeah. He didn't tell, right? He didn't tell. Uh-huh. The main guy, Roger Patterson, it's called the Patterson-Gimlin right. film. Yeah. Roger Patterson, when he made it, he was dying of cancer, and mm-hmm. he knew it. And he was... This, this is a guy who you, there is nothing positive you can say about him. He was a dick. <laughs> Everyone hated him. He was dishonest. He was lazy. Um, he never paid his debts. He, I, I mean, he, Aside he, from the laziness, you could also say this about Joseph Smith. Final shot at the Mormons, but just say. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot speak to that having not looked into it. But for Roger Patterson, the, the one saving grace about the guy uh, was that he loved his wife very much and he was very worried about what was going to happen to her after he died. And making this Bigfoot film was his last big ditch effort to fall ass backwards into some money somehow and provide for his wife after he died and it worked yeah and it worked better than he ever could have hoped and um that's an aspect to the story that nobody has ever heard of that nobody has ever talked about um and i think i i got the episode for me was quite poignant writing into looking into this guy's personal motivations and i mean he was not out there trying to fool people he was but that was incidental his main purpose was to find a way to provide for his wife Mm -hmm. incidentally by hoaxing people and cheating investors and everything all of which was part of the picture i'm not excusing what he did by any by any stretch but there was a very important human element and the story would not have happened if it were not for that very important human element yeah and um i got quite a bit of criticism i got 10 times as much praise don't get me wrong people really liked that episode um but i got criticism for oh you're taking the side of this you know this scumbag this guy who's cheated and fraud and everything like that and um (laughs) you know if you don't get that kind of feedback you're not doing something right (laughs) (laughs) funny to think though that just getting very analytical and here are the facts of a situation can still be met with praise and how dare you you know that you would think both sides would be able to go okay well those are the facts but there are going to be people that inherently reel back or recoil and say and people react out of a place of you've touched something that's very dear to me and you've criticized it i'm lashing out i'm coming at you yeah and then other people the the als one is so fascinating because um the man on the moon the jim carrey movie about andy kaufman yeah and andy kaufman goes to get treatment and he, he kind of knows he's he's like well i'm going to this shaman who's going to do this spell and and then he looks and sees the shaman like reach down and grab some chicken cutlets and kind of rub them in some blood <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> pretend to pull them out of his side and he just kind of chuckles like of course you know uh, you can't con a con man i i i, I do pranks <laughs> i know what you're doing it's hilarious like i i can't believe i let myself believe in it a little bit but i had to i have nothing else i had to kind of 
to believe in this. And my friend Amber, her mother, uh, has ALS. And, you know, she was like, I, I went into debt to take her to Hawaii because I just wanted her to float in the ocean. And she just feels so peaceful there. And so we want to do these sort of things for our family members. We just want them to feel some joy in that situation. She's lost a ton of weight and she can barely speak or barely move. And she's like, I just know she loves the water. She can talk to me and say, this is amazing. But then she gets a kit or something, you know, or wants to spend on this and say Amber wants to, wants to buy it because how do you not? How do you not? You know, you say this person has a limited time. I want them to feel every great thing. But of course she's rational and savvy and knows the thing that she's being sold is by a person with no soul who's the of the worst kind of human that can exist, who is only taking advantage of this exact dynamic that they know you're smart enough to know what I'm selling you is bullshit. I'm the chicken cutlet shaman guy. <laughs> but your mom might for a moment be Andy Kaufman laying there going, I just need this. And so when you provide a very rational, hey, here's why to not do that, it's really valuable. I, I just feel like that has immense power to to allow that person in that situation to go, oh, I guess I, I, I definitely don't need this shaman guy. I don't need to spend all my family's money <laughs> <laughs> to have this feel. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, 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 it was hard for me to come out and say that, um, the, the patient, the victim has to also take on some more responsibility and not create more victims in his family mm -hmm. by harming himself, by letting himself be taken advantage of, because that hurts his fam family more than it hurts him. To pay to counter that and be the devil's advocate in a way that is also supportive of you is that you're also giving that person some autonomy. You're not just a vegetable laying there incapable. You have the ability to decide yes or no, good or bad in these situations. And, and therefore you should, you should be aware of what you're choosing to do. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and that's, that's a, that's, that's a valid point, but there's also a valid point of what should you do with that autonomy? Mm -hmm. Do you have the right to make your family's pain worse? Right. Because you're going to exercise your autonomy. Yeah. No, and but that's what I mean that you're, you're saying to them here, I know what you want to do and you you have every right to do it. I think from the outside, we, even people that are listening to this or would listen to your podcast episode would go, Oh, but still, you know, I, I saw, uh, an elderly person who had lost a limb from diabetes at a family gathering with uh, a ch uh, one of their children just ladling ice cream to them. And you, know, you see that, it's kind of shocking. <laughs> what, are, what are you doing? Like, oh, well, she's old. This makes her happy. You can feel any number of ways about that. It's not my place to say anything. Like, I don't care. Okay, it makes her happy. But you can have an opinion on it. And it, I feel like it's the same thing. Like you're just providing, it would be like if you just showed up in that situation, like here are some facts about diabetes. Here's how sugar, here's the pancreas, here's yeah. insulin, et cetera. And then maybe that person would push the spoon away and go, oh, okay, I don't need any more ice cream. Or maybe they wouldn't. And to, But to remove them from the equation and say, Oh, they're they're so far gone. Who cares what they think? You know that that I could see where people would maybe think that was the case. But you're giving them. You're saying you're not just sitting there. You're a person. You still have judgment. You still have reason. You should use it and use it for the good. You be smart about it. Do you give a hit to a junkie? Right. Makes them feel good. Mm -hmm. I think you could ask that question with. They only have a week to live. They only have a month to live. They only have five years to live. Where do you start drawing that line of they have an hour to live? 
you and I would probably go, yeah, all right. All the hits. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. (laughs) That's a weird sliding scale to think about. I've never been presented with that. Me either. That that is interesting. Yeah. Wow. I don't know what I would do. I think (laughs) it really, where does, where does my threshold exist? Maybe like a month? No. Because then I'd be like, yeah, go for it. You only have a month. Two years? Like, wow, you want this two years to be better. That's a whole like little microcosm of life what are yeah. we i think more information needed i think is is the answer for those longer time periods but right. <laughs> for an hour yeah i, I mean I, th- I think we we probably all know people who came home for hospice care at the end of their life mm-hmm. and um i know this happens a lot the doctor says oh by the way wink wink don't give him this much morphine oh yeah and that happens a lot yeah and um uh i i think it's it is an awesome thing when mm-hmm. a family can you know the, everyone working together patient and family all together can end the painful life with dignity with love in the in the home and everything on their own terms by their own hand i think that's a wonderful thing i agree and oh god i always forget his name there's a guy in australia who's referred to as the tesla of death because he's created these little chambers that if your family member is in a situation where they're in a lot of pain, they climb into it. There's a button. It's a noble gas, right? It, it fills it with a xenon or, or yeah. something. Yeah. Yep. And so, and, and no one really knows what sort of pain they are in or not in at that point, but just that when they go into that chamber, they have full control over hitting the button and then you just kind of come by later and open it up and there's a corpse and so there's not a lot of thrashing or them banging around it's just a peaceful thing that they are in control of the morphine to me is yeah like second to that it the only odd element is seeing and i've that exact situation you described i've witnessed seeing family members you know offspring like a, a little thing to a pinky mouse kind of that little uh squeeze tube thing that the morphine comes out of like yeah i, I know what you mean I you know what i'm talking I about i don't know what, is, what you'd yeah. call that but like it's not a syringe but it's you squeeze it at the top and you just kind of can squeeze out drops and to see someone doing that to a loved one to a parent knowing that this is what what you're giving them right now is the exit oddly helpful but but strange to see there's a part of us i think that wants the the doctor to be involved in a way that can you can you how does this end how do how do we do this and then they go here you go don't give like you just said don't give them too much (laughs) it's a weird thing it's a that's a that's a pretty profound life step Mm -hmm. and you know i i think as everyone gets older uh, occasionally you get the chance to make some profound life step i mean even if it's something positive like having a baby that changes your life in a big way and you're never the same person after that happens and i think what we're describing now is just another one of these steps that um i think most people probably don't end up going through that one but those that do it's 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 one hell of a thing it's a it blows your mind and it changes who you are from then on but i don't think those necessarily by themselves make it bad um it's a it's a tough situation and it's what the family needs and it, it's what works mm-hmm. yeah i mean if they were a perfect way to do it or some sort of i think people have stories of in this culture they used to do this or you know this is we're still figuring that out i think <laughs> we're still figuring out like what's an ideal way to you know when you turn whatever age say somewhere between 20 and 30 and you really start thinking of 
aunts and uncles and people that were around your whole life, you know, maybe hiding Easter eggs or giving you gifts or videotaping things or throwing you the ball or driving you to whatever it was. They were just in your life and they were young and fit. And then at some point the, the turn happens where you start seeing your grandparents who were also, you have a vague recollection of them being kind of active and now they're pretty sedentary. And then you can flash forward and see your aunts and uncles in that same situation and your parents. And then you can see yourself in their spot and the younger generation behind you. And you really get a sense of these kind of levels you get to. And when you're young, it just panics you. You go, oh my God, I'm going to be this age. I'm going to be at that point. But then as you settle in, as you get older, you just start going, yep, I guess this is just a, here we go. (laughs) Now I'm at the stage where I'm doing the morphine. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you it sounds like you've got a firm grasp on that where you just here's life, here's where we're here's the next step. Yeah, I mean I I think back there's a lot of next steps my family's gone through that um you know, you you, you certainly uh, I don't, I don't want to say something stupid like, oh, you grow as a person. But uh, <laughs> it, 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 it definitely expands your sphere of experience. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, for where you are now, were you someone that had hard, hardline goals of I want to be here, I want to be doing this by this age, I want to, or were you kind of always just, I don't know what this is, we'll see where it takes me. Or did you always believe in the do what you're passionate about? I, no. Um, I, I did, I was on like the 15-year the college plan um, <laughs> because I was never able to become sufficiently disinterested in enough things to focus on one thing. <laughs> so I ended up pursuing computer science and writing for film and television, which is the only thing I ever actually completed. Um, so th- two things that are about as diametrically opposed as possible and only worked a little bit in, e- in each industry and was just kind of all over the place. Um, I, I had way too many of these life goals you're talking about. I said, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do that. I just, I don't know if I'm ADHD or what, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I always talk about, boy, if I had like 15 different lives, here's what I'd do with this one. Here's what I'd do with this one. Here's what I'd do with that yeah. one. And there are all these weird things like, you know, I want to be a P-38 Lightning owner operator or I want to make parts for uh, uh, Merlin uh, engines or uh, <laughs> all these different things. Um, where, 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 where I ended up was someplace that ended up being extremely satisfactory for me because, um, I mean, my, my interests are so diverse and now I get to study diverse interests briefly for a living. Mm -hmm. I get to spend a week on something that has always been really cool and really neat for me. And then next week I get to do something else. So I almost get to be like a different person each week. So that's been extremely satisfying. Um, And the fact that I get to make a living at it is incredible. But what's most incredible is uh, the feedback that I get from people saying, hey, you really made a big difference in my life with this. Um, I mean, we've got, we, we've got a, a scientist whose career arose and then ended um, 
who were is one of our interview subjects in our film Science Friction that we're working on right now. And I had no idea. But while we were interviewing him afterwards, he says, you know, you're the reason I got into science in the first place. Whoa. I'm going, wait, no way. Wait, how, how old is Scott Floyd? <laughs> I, guess, I guess, yeah, I guess, I guess it's that old. Yeah, you could have gotten, gone, into, gone to college, gotten a PhD, had a career, and then had it <laughs> blow up and burn on you. <laughs> um, it, it's, there's things like that that's amazing. The, the, the ALS story I was talking about, mm-hmm. you know, that's something I'll never forget. And um, just so many people telling me over the years... Uh, I mean, it's been uh, 13 years, and there's 52 weeks in a year, and I hear from someone like this at least once a week, so that's a lot of people um, saying that I made a profound difference in their lives. And so, you know, running a nonprofit is not a get-rich-quick scheme, but I wouldn't trade what I'm doing for anything. It's it's just so rewarding, both on the the personal level, the interpersonal level, uh, professional level at least you know i'm not eating out of trash cans <laughs> and the, the fact that i just get to do live all these amazing alternate lives every week <laughs> does that make sense hell yeah I mean, yeah yeah when when you got here and you commented on the space which i feel like everyone kind of in some way references it but not everyone really you were really taken in and looking around and was kind of explaining some of the different ways like i utilize the space for i've got this sewing machine i'm still working on and depending on when this episode comes out, I think it was referenced one or two people before, so it might seem like, what is going on with this sewing machine? <laughs> but trying to figure out sewing and then screen printing. And, and when you were talking about when you when you when you say you're done with an episode you know it's the equivalent of finishing a painting how do you know when that last brush stroke is or and knowing you know painting is different because you can step back and be like that's really good and and maybe not oh i wanted to paint so much more over here painters aren't really at that sort of time crunch whereas you go god i would have loved to have found that article from 1938 and really dug uh, in and go yeah. <laughs> so when you had that resonated with me completely because the 15 lives things the i go back and forth between that that if you had a, a thousand lives you could be a rock climber or an explorer or a shackleton person or an advent you know, uh, some sort of scuba diving person or just a researcher or a teacher or a coach or a million things and then at the other side of it is boy life is long you gotta just keep doing stuff <laughs> you gotta keep going out and interacting and putting stuff and making stuff and etc cetera, etc cetera. I, I balance between those a lot and uh i think we're similar in that regard that just having varied interests and then having the ability that we're lucky enough these days to and what would you do if you had this before you didn't have this accessibility to throw it out into the internet to the world what do you do you're just kind of writing letters to yourself and putting them in a shoebox (laughs) i that that's that's a really interesting way to describe it because that's in 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 a very significant way that's what i'm doing <laughs> i mean every 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 episode that i do with very few exceptions there are weeks where i'm just simply not passionate about any of the items on my to-do list and i just have to get an episode out that does happen Will you do it you have to that's great yeah, it's, 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 it's my job i mean there's got to be an episode out every tuesday it. morning that's oh, great but 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 95 percent of them um are something that i'm genuinely there's some spark in every story that really appeals to me Mm -hmm. um 
I keep coming back to um, the one where I was addressing the question of who was the first to climb Mount Everest. Was it actually Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Sherpa Norgay. Tenzing Norgay, or yeah. was it um, uh, Andrew Irvine and um, who's the main guy? I've never even heard of I'm this. I'm spacing out. Oh, my gosh. Um, the guy who said, why climb a mountain? Because it's there. Oh. Uh, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm horrified that I'm forgetting the name. Mallory. Yes. George Mallory. So, yeah. Thank you. Okay. Ma- Mallory and Irvine um, were said to have climbed Mount Everest before um, Hillary and, 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 and Tenzing. I guess Tenzing is his last name. I think. Oh, they do, they oh do, right. They flip it. Yeah, I think I think they do it the same way as China. I hope I'm right about that. I apologize to any Nepalese out there if I'm wrong, or is he Tibetan? I guess I've just <laughs> insulted both <laughs> cultures. <laughs> oh boy. I apologize. Address all of your hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but they they died in the they died in the attempt. Um, however, did they make it to the summit first? Yes or no? That's still an unanswered question. And uh, I guess a film crew, I think from Nova, went up there and trying to find their bodies to try and recover their film from their camera. And incredibly, they almost immediately found Mallory's body. Really? Uh, and they have still have never found Irvine's body. I thought that the... Um, is it the... What are the, what's the step named after? So on, on the one, there's, the, there's two ways up Everest. Uh-huh. There's the earlier difficult way because uh, of the three nations, there's been different periods where they weren't one nation or, or one or another nation would not allow any people to climb on, that, on their territory. So earlier, Mallory and Irvine went the, most, the more difficult route, and there's the first step, second step, and third step. The other way, the easy way that Sir Edmund Hillary did, and which everyone does now, that always has a traffic jam, yeah. that has the Hillary steps, which, which is covered with like a big a ladder. Ladder, yeah. Yeah, there's like a permanent ladder there now. So it's basically a hike, and you got to climb a couple of ladders, but there's no real climbing involved in yeah, that. Yeah, okay. But the other one is very technical and very difficult and much harder oh, the okay. entire way. And so people still climb it mm-hmm. um, today. Is it... You know, when you think of the stories you hear of its backlog, there's feces everywhere, there's a ton of uh, air tanks yeah. nonstop. Yeah. That's probably the Hillary side. It, it, it is. The other way is easy sailing, like don't see anybody because it's Although, so difficult. You know, you know about how there's supposedly 200 bodies still yeah. on Mount Everest, right? And the most famous one is this guy named Green Boots whose body has since been removed, but it's not clear where his body is now. Uh, but he was like hiding in a cave <laughs> named after his kind of fluorescent green uh, boots that he was wearing. Um, and he's actually on the difficult side. Ah. The, um, I think he was right near the first step or the second step. Uh, it was where the little cave is where, where his body was. But so even the more difficult route has enough people doing it. I mean, those are the serious mountaineers who do yeah. that. But the tourists who just write a check for 75 grand to go there, they just yeah, and hold a rope. They do the easy just, way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's just, it just feels like a Disneyland line at this point. But, but anyway, where I was going with this was um, that was a question that had always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. Just you know, going back to when I was a little kid and, you know, everyone hears when you're a little kid, oh, Mount Everest, 29,028 feet. And here's the picture of, I guess the photograph is actually of 
Tenzing Norgay, the famous photograph where he's standing there, looks like he's wearing a space helmet and he's holding a flag or something. Uh-huh. Um, and then you hear, oh, but these other two guys climbed it 30 years earlier? Uh, that's within probably within a 10 year margin of error. (laughs) Again, I don't remember all the details of these episodes. And so then I got to, I got to dive into that and I got to spend a week basically getting into the minds of these people who were on this earlier expedition, learning all of their individual stories, finding all these later reports of where dead bodies were seen by later expeditions and who was that body was that andrew irvine or was that george mallory um and there was a guy on their expedition who was watching them in with binoculars and the first first second and third steps were known and they were very difficult to climb and andrew irvine was not a climber at all he would have had a lot of trouble (laughs) getting up any of those why was he there (laughs) <laughs> well, a lot of people were there. I mean, it was a big expedition. <laughs> Say, I'm going to climb Everest. You want to go? I don't climb. I've never climbed. Sure, I'll do it. And, and then there's there's clues. Like, uh, we never knew where their bodies were because they weren't discovered until... Mallory wasn't discovered until very recently. All that was ever found was Irvine's ice axe. And you're not going to just leave your ice axe behind. But yeah. if you fell and it came loose or something... Yeah. So that's probably where... At least he fell, but we didn't know where they fell. Ah. Um, and, you know, I, I won't spoil the surprise, but there's a very definite answer to that question of which which party was first. Was it really? Sir Edmund Hillary or was it George Mallory? Which episode are we talking about here? Do you know the number? I don't know the number, but the title is obvious. It's like, who climbed Everest, Hillary or Mallory? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Oh, I'm intrigued. Man, nice, nice uh, lead up. (laughs) I'm I'm so uh, invested in that. It's very, very rare that uh, a lot of these famous questions like this, it's very rare that there is not an absolute definite answer. It's rare that there's not? It's rare that it's not. Most of these popular mysteries Uh are only mysteries because someone on TV wants to make it, wants to frame it as a mystery. So that's the thing I was wondering recently. I saw this YouTube ad that was like, are you sick of mainstream media? Join us. And I was just like, oh, brother. But I also thought, you know, when there's a catastrophe happening in, a, happening in any location, any community, and they are just hoping that someone will pick up on it. You know, they're yelling, they're screaming, whether it's, uh, you know, my, my child has whatever. Not that they've gone missing with Tim to pick up on that, but how often does the world or at least the national media touch in on a story and go, this is happening in this town and there's a cancer cluster and this sort of leakage is happening. So if we just focused, where would we get news that we trusted that we would say, Okay, here we go. Everyone tune in. These five people have five stories they're going to share. These are final. They're going to give you absolute, concrete, without question, definitive results. You'll know these stories. And then one of them could be like, here's who climbed Everest first. And you can come out and do the Skeptoid episode and everyone would go, okay, check. I know that one now. And that would be worthwhile. That We're all just living in this constant flutter where there's just, it seems like debris flying around all the time. We're just catching on to little bits of it. And then someone else will have a different bit of it. And go, oh, you got that? No, I thought it was this. 
Someone the other day was trying to convince me that English wasn't one of the romance languages. And I was, and they seemed to know a lot of stuff. And I was like, that just doesn't seem right to me. And then someone messaged me recently and was like, did you know Romanian was the fifth romance language, include, and along with da-da-da-da-da and English? And I was like, I knew it. I always knew it. Why did I doubt? Because it's just too much. There's too much, too much debris flying around. It'd just be so nice if we had skeptoid-esque little portals we could look into and be like, here's the answer for that. You know, people always ask me, where do you get your news? Mm-hmm. Because they think that I have some secret answer and this is this is the one place you can go where you'll find the correct truth about anything and everything. Uh-huh. There's just no such place. You know, every, every story... Let me see how to put this. The the sensationalized, falsified version of every story benefits a different group. Right. And so you've got to go to a different place for every different story, whatever it is you're trying to learn about. Mm-hmm. So there, there probably is an answer to that question, but it's different for every story. <laughs> you were saying that when we first met that when you, you know, you were originally, I think you were going to the library, checking things out. And now yeah. you do online PDFs. Well, I still of- have to go to the library sometimes, although it's much more difficult now living in Bend, Oregon. I don't have access to a major university library without a three hour drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in Southern California, all the time I was going to the UC Irvine library, I went to the UCLA library, went to UC San Diego. Um, and, if I have a couple of days, I definitely have library friends who will get me whatever document I want, but I don't always have a few days because I'm on such a much tighter schedule these mm-hmm. days. And that's that's tough. Access to libraries is huge. I wish I had access to libraries. Um, here's an example. There's a famous story that you've probably heard if you've ever watched any of these Discovery Channel, Sci-Fi Channel, Nat Nat Geo Channel, about an alien that crash-landed in a town in Texas in the 1800s. And the alien's body is now buried in that town cemetery. (laughs) It's called Aurora, Texas. I thought you were going to say Marfa, because they have the lights there. No, the Marfa lights, yeah, that's another another great one. But um, that one has scholarly research that's accessible. You just have to have, I have all the accounts, I have all all these paid accounts for all of the um, online journal accesses. And yes, they are too expensive, and that's another subject for another time. (laughs) But for this particular story, this Aurora, Texas story with the alien buried in the cemetery, of course, course you ask well why don't we just go to the cemetery and dig it up and then we'll see if it's an alien or not right right so why doesn't that happen and there was one investigative reporter i don't know if he was an investigative reporter that's probably not the right answer he was he was an author uh i don't remember his name but he wrote a book called a loose herd of texans (laughs) where he just went to all kinds of different cities in texas and talked to all kinds of interesting people and sort of just put together these really fascinating chapters that were little insights into various aspects of Texas history. Mm -hmm. And one of his chapters was on this story in Aurora, Texas. And so far as I've ever been able to find out, he's the only person who ever actually went to the town and spoke to the Chamber of Commerce, spoke to all the old timers in town, and got the true history of what actually happened back in the 1800s with this this alien flying saucer crashing into the church tower and killing the alien (laughs) and ruining the mayor's flower bed and all these details of the story and i had to get that book because that was 
whatever was in the chapter of that book had not made it onto Wikipedia or into <laughs> any other books that I could find. Yeah. There was a few references to that book, but they didn't give enough information. They didn't give enough quotes from his chapter or anything. And I had to go and get that book. And it was luckily at the UCI library, which was a 30 minute drive from my house. And I, I went there and got it and it was amazing. And Did it feel like finding gold when you... Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm, shoot, you, you, just, you just nailed why I do what I do, because <laughs> I'm, I'm, every, every week I'm actually solving the mystery. Yeah, well, you are. Many weeks. <laughs> when there's an urban legend like this, it's actually solving the mystery that is, that's the treasure at the end of the rainbow, right? Yeah. It's, it's not stop, stopping at the popular version of the story, the paranormal version of the story, the, the science discovery channel version of the story. That's really lame. You just, oh, it was a ghost. Oh, yeah. aliens built the pyramids. And stopping <laughs> there and closing your mind off to any further information seems so lame to me. I want to know what actually happened in all of these cases. Uh-huh. And so it, for that Aurora, Texas, the alien buried in the cemetery, I got to find out exactly what happened. And it was another one of these stories that turned out to be very profound and a very personal story. And super super rewarding to learn what really happened and why it happened and that story is so much better than today's ufo groups who still go to that town with a metal detector walking around the light the, the the cemetery trying to find this 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 grave that is so stupid and it is so misguided and they're so far away from where the real treasure is in that story because they're not going to find an alien buried in the cemetery i'll just spoil <laughs> that part of it for you right now but they are missing the real treasure of what actually happened there which is a super super profound um human story does it make you feel not incensed or, or just do you want to tear your hair out where you're like this is i the, do because they, they could even that ghost story crew that shows up they put a budget together they travel they'll shoot it in five years another story will come uh, you know another team will come from a different channel there's the almost always a real story behind all of these and for these tv shows that just do the stupid laziest possible treatment of saying hey let's you know pretend there's a ghost in this old lighthouse and, yeah. and have people shine flashlights around and with the camera set to night <laughs> mode and go what was that what was that <laughs> that is so that's embarrassingly stupid and they're always missing a really cool story I was telling you... Uh, and yes, I am pitching TV sh- shows <laughs> based on this idea all the time. You I've should. got wonderful pitch packages. If anyone out there listening wants a pitch package, call me. I hope they... I mean, why wouldn't we want a story that could be the definitive... Look, this is the research. Here it is. We don't We don't need to keep what-ifing it when we have... And not to say that every story you've tackled has a button on the end as, this is final. But a lot of them, I imagine, it's got to be maddening when you see people come along like, we don't know anything about this. And you go, just check out my episode. We know way more than you're assuming or or suggesting. So a few years ago, um, a guy came to me and he's since become one of my best friends um, who wanted to put together, shoot a TV pilot based on subjects like around my podcast, right? And so we we came up with the idea. It's going to be like a... 
uh, the Super Friends meets Queer Eye for the for the what was it called? Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, so our idea was. Um, the skeptical superheroes we had a team of scientists they would see the bat signal they'd jump in the batmobile and they'd race off to the scene of the pseudoscience to debunk it right Mm -hmm. so they all had their particular expertise and everything and we shot a pilot (laughs) spent entirely too much money on that (laughs) filmed a whole hour-long pilot with a big crew um uh got an agent took it around had great success taking it to all the tv networks almost got a deal uh, and this dates it the our slot on discovery was taken by a show called harry bikers <laughs> so they chose harry bikers <laughs> over our show i think true tv was the other one that we went quite far with but here was the uh, and and now the producers were absolutely right in this objection but this was their main objection they said well is the paranormal explanation going to turn out to be the true one at least some of the time? Yeah. Because if not, nobody's going to watch the show. I, that's weird. I, I pitched a science show at one point and I got asked that exact same question. And I was like, I didn't even mention paranormal stuff at all. And I just thought that's so weird that that's become a bullet point for sensationalism that at least some point it's got to be determined that there are ghosts, right? <laughs> and I was like, why is that a prerequisite for a science show? Let me ask you this. Did Scooby-Doo need that? <laughs> what happened at the end of every Scooby-Doo episode? You damn kids! I would have gotten away with it, too! Exactly. We knew what was happening at the end of every Scooby-Doo episode, and yet we still watched it. Yeah. So I argue that there is very much a place for a foregone conclusion we know what kind of a conclusion it's going to be, but we don't know what it is. Get out of my office. I mean, wasn't it just interesting that I, I said we have a definitive answer for Hillary versus Mallory on Mount Everest? I've declined your television show. <laughs> yeah, of course. That's what I'm tuned in for. I don't get who this imaginary audience is that they think needs to have something inconclusive at the end to get to the end and go (laughs) i guess we don't know flight 19 in the bermuda triangle the five tbm avengers that all disappeared Mm -hmm. all five of them all at once the most famous story of the bermuda triangle we know what happened exactly what happened in every detail hint it was not paranormal and it was not the bermuda triangle but don't you still want to know what it is? Sure, of course I do. Well, I the TV it. networks don't. They they only want it to be, well, it's the Bermuda Triangle. It's mysteries. It's uh, something strange and paranormal from the depths of the sea. Well, okay, no, it's not. But don't you still want to know what it is? Some of my favorite shows ever, I can't even name. I'll go, oh, there's this show. I think it was just a pilot. But they did this thing on the Bermuda Triangle where it releases this methane gas that when planes are flying through, (laughs) it changes their... uh, And this seems scientific to me in a way where they could recreate it. They could replicate the study and show it would screw up their instruments and make them think they were gaining altitude and therefore they would dive down and plunge into the ocean. And when they would build those things, I'd be like, okay, that's one explanation but i like a show like that it's but. stupid it, it, it's <laughs> moreover it's just simply not true somebody made something up that just kind of sounds sciency well you know big big surprise nothing like that happens in the world anywhere <laughs> ever in the oceans uh-huh. there aren't trained pilots that suddenly start going dive down 
down. We're gaining too much altitude. <laughs> uh, actually, you're closer than you know to what actually happened in the Flight 19 case. Really? The, yeah. <laughs> I love all these teases. <laughs> Speaking of which, we've, we we should really go into some bonus chatting at this point. If you still got a little beer left. I have a third of a glass. Okay. We'll do a little more. Great guy. Really like chatting with that Brian Dunning. A vast array of uh, emotions and feelings, hopefully. And if you haven't checked out that uh, uh, Shackleton thing, please, you got it. It's, it's, it's just an amazing feat of survival. And there's more of that chat. There's about an hour more as we finish more of that delicious McKellar uh, in, the, in the Patreon. So if you support the show, uh, you get access to bonus stuff. It's not every month. I think this month has like three or four of them. It's just a a smorgasbord in there if you like extra content beyond the show uh but if you just want to support the show just to exist in its current state for free that's the place to do it you can also get screen prints and things like that at thespacecave.com if you'd like some memorabilia to walk to wear around or carry around or hang on your wall and tell people that visit your domicile that you Support the Space Cave. The show's commercial-free. It's brought to you by com- uh, contributions from listeners just like you. I try to keep it uh, unencumbered from the giant machine that seems to infiltrate and influence everything. This show just quietly exists. If you f- know about it, I'm curious how. Hopefully it was word of mouth. And if you'd like to support the show and you maybe don't want to spend you know, a few bucks a month, just tell a friend. Tell one person that you think might like it. You can also rate, review, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you get podcasts. That helps with the algorithm. And otherwise, we'll just keep we'll keep it our little thing. Um, I think that's it. The Junk Show is always the second Sunday of every month. If you find yourself in Los Angeles between the 8th and 14th of any given month, and it is a Sunday, the Junk Show will likely be happening and you can uh, you can check on my Twitter is usually the best place to see uh, if it is happening. You can email the show pings at thespacecave.com if you have suggestions for beer or music or topics or guests or anything else. And uh, you can follow it on Twitter space underscore cave. All right. Thanks to Dan for putting this together. Remember, there's uh, additional chatting with Brian. I highly recommend it. Really fun guy to converse with. And um, let's get out of here. This is a song called Swimmers. It's by Zero Seven. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.
Shadows of light into the night. 